Welcome to the Liberal Europe Podcast, European Liberal Forum Project. I'm your host, Ricardo Silvestre. And today I'll be speaking with Susanna Karp. Susanna is the political strategy director in the Bologna Europe office. And we were talking about the EU Green Deal. How can that be of change to the European Union? And also we'll be touching about migration, climate change and human rights. And after our conversation, I'll be back to tell you about some of the events organized by ELF for this month of November. I'm here with Susanna Karp. Susanna, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Hi, Ricardo. Thank you so much for having me over. It's a pleasure to be here. Susanna, you have a fascinating background, and I would like to start by you presenting yourself to our audience because you had many experiences and some of them are related to not only climate and we'll be talking about that a little more up ahead but also with uh, social liberal values so tell us uh, how did you got here okay uh thank you let's uh, try to to find a, a way to keep a story that's uh, quite complex <laughs> uh to, to keep it somewhat concise uh but uh, i was born in romania um towards the the second part of the 80s so um one of my very first memories um is actually the romanian revolution <laughs> and watching it from uh, from my window uh, at my house. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, later on, um, I won a scholarship and moved to the United States for eight years, where I got to study uh, global peace studies and um, environmental systems. And so those years really shaped my um, outlook and my interests. So uh, once I returned to Europe, I um, followed a master's in migration studies, Uh, and to my surprise, I noticed that sort of all roads led me towards um, environmental inequalities, towards climate change as a bigger issue of our times than just, let's say, the, the climate dimension of it, but rather the social justice dimension of it uh, was something that really struck me across all, all, across all the policies uh, and all the, the areas that I've studied. Uh, so now I'm uh, in Brussels, um, working for an environmental NGO, specifically targeting uh, climate change mitigation. That's what uh, we're, we're trying to, to promote, uh, faster climate action. Uh, but obviously the, the values that, um, I, uh, that I carry with me in my work um, are those that I referred to earlier, which is the very strong social dimension. Um, and I do um, very strongly see a role for, for um, the liberal framework and uh, in particular the human rights framework and uh, the role of empowered individuals in shaping their communities to, to be, uh, I guess, a, a stronger role now in, in the climate uh, discussion as we're moving forward to a uh, hopefully more climate-friendly world. <laughs> hopefully so. And you do have a contribution, but in particular, this uh, uh, chapter that we're talking about, that it's you are the author, is called Climate Change, Migration and Human Rights. And of course, just this would be enough for us to record three or four podcasts. This is a big, uh, big pot, Susanna. Climate change migration, human rights. These are three of the most important factors right now. Please tell us a little more about this. Okay, would love to. Uh, so it's it's true that the three are uh, quite uh, big topics uh, in their own uh, right. Uh, the connection between them is what uh, I like to 
refer to as the sort of a green social liberal um, uh, outlook that uh, I, I um, that I use in describing myself uh, across these different uh, policy areas. I think they are connected and that the solutions to each of those are actually could lead us to uh, a virtuous uh, cycle of uh, pol uh, public policies. And uh, maybe to, to clearly explain what I mean by a green social liberal is, um, uh, for me, that uh, starts from the acknowledgement that the climate that the climate and the environmental crisis are uh, really some existential threats we're faced with at the moment. They are the single biggest uh, challenge humanity is faced with currently. But in tackling uh, these bigger, the, these macro level, I would say, um, threats, we have a historic opportunity to fix some of the um, social imbalances in our economic system. And uh, the in, we would be aiming to do so precisely with a view to having a liberal sort of um, framework of equal rights and uh, individuals which have access to opportunities um, that then enable them to make informed choices and empowered choices about their lifestyles. Um, so in, in a snapshot, I think we're talking about the green social liberal um, set or a green social liberal agenda to tackling uh, today's biggest, uh, most pressing challenges. And um, I would say that uh, in, unless we follow such a path uh, without trying to, to scare people too much, but uh, I do think there is uh, quite a possibility that if we go wrong um, on finding you know, a, a good balance between these or maybe a harmonious balance, a complementary um, set of responses, there is the possibility that uh, we will either miss to address one or two of these uh, or just to create further problems in society that uh, will take even uh, more, let's say, uh, of, um, of a crisis management uh, response needed. And crisis management is not necessarily the best way to address profound social changes that need to be, you know, uh, really carefully thought out and uh, implemented with, you know, uh, a deep care for citizens and uh, ourselves and our neighbors. Now, I want to um, focus a little on something you said, and, is, and that is we don't want to scare people too much. As we progress in the European Union and try to find more exactly of liberal and socially minded changes, what is your take on you know, the European Green Deal, now the EU climate laws? Are we going in a good direction or are we going too fast? We could go a little faster and not scaring people too much. What is your take on this situation? Uh, thanks. I absolutely love uh, these two topics you've uh, just brought up. I should say I've been working on the EU climate law for the past past two or three years um, and have experience uh, previously uh, with the UK climate law. Uh, so, But the, the, the crucial point about um, its significance is in relation to the EU Green Deal, which is ultimately meant to be um, a deal of some sort. It is meant to be a social pact. It is meant to be uh, promoting a new vision on how uh, the economic system can actually work for the planet and for people. Uh, there's long been, you know, documented uh, theoretical approaches that highlight uh, the, the shortcomings of our, you know, short-term focus on profit and uh, the fact that we might have uh, compromised some of these bigger values um, 
so far. But I think that is where we are now in, in the EU Green Deal. I think it is a historical moment uh, for Europe, but also for, for the wider world. And uh, as I've said many times before, the, the EU Green Deal has to be a deal uh, for okay those on the European continent, sure enough, but it has to be a deal for the rest of the world in a way as well. And so either that way can be in um, the EU setting the right um, parameters involving citizens in these decisions, making sure that you know the economy still runs or even uh, prospers in this transformation. So we have the opportunity to share that in different ways uh, with our partners around the world and uh, just maybe with citizens around the world. That's probably what we should focus on. Um, but yes, I think the EU Green Deal is the single most important uh, reinvention of the European project that we are looking at since the inception of the European Union. And I uh, think the element of trust has to be uh, extremely important in this, and it has to be harnessed uh, between the EU institutions and the EU citizens. There is ways uh, in which that can be done, uh, keeping in mind that obviously there are shortcomings to, you know, different needing to take very complex decisions and needing very complex legislative files that obviously uh, you know would take too much uh, too much time even for an expert to really or a group of experts to really pick through all the details but it's just the principles have to be right um, and in terms of whether we're moving too fast I think if anything uh, we've been moving too slow and my impression is that this is really an opportunity to fast forward um, an agenda of responses to the ultimately calls of citizens. And they have called uh, over the past, I would say, 10 years for two important elements, uh, or perhaps I should say three. Uh, I'll start with the more recent one, which is that, uh, you know, in all the polls, you have European citizens in a very large percentage asking for climate action. But we also know that they're asking for economic um, security following the previous crisis from 2008 to 2010. Uh, so, and we also know that for Europe, it's very important to continue to have um, economic growth and to continue to be extremely competitive um, on you know, innovation at the global level. So I think these three can actually be successfully um, achieved simultaneously through the EU Green Deal. But I'm not sure we're there yet. Those are great points, and my question was uh, had a booby trap on it because exactly as there's more and more people asking for reforms and for a more environmental-centered politics. On the other hand, and we saw that in France with the Les Gilets Jaunes, there are that anxiety about economic growth and economic security, and how can we change, you know, fossil uh, fuels for? Uh, green ones. I really love the expression you just used, and that is, this could be a reinvention of the European Union that we haven't seen since the inception of the European Union. So I would just like to underline that thought of yours, which it's a very provocative one. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, just earlier this year, uh, during the lockdown that we all experienced, um, I did write uh, a, a blog piece uh, and then uh, it, it actually ended up being an op-ed in uh, Agence Europe. Uh, and I outlined precisely um, what, uh, what, what this reinvention means. But so I started from the concept of peace um, and I recalled the fact that the European Union was set up as a peace uh, process. 
originally, um, the sort of peace that the European Union was set up to deliver was um, uh, peace uh, from war. And so it was directly focusing on uh, integrating the resources that would have allowed, uh, would have made war possible. And gradually, as it um, evolved, it, it moved towards a broader uh, construction, which also looked to tackle or to address structural peace. So the inequalities uh, in, in different uh, aspects of them um, across the European Union. So we've had uh, mostly around um, migration rights and um, the rights of workers, but we've seen quite early on, and then we've seen the European Union develop quite strongly in that direction. So with a view to making to, to make rights um, equal across its space, so therefore providing structural peace uh, among different citizens of different countries. We've now reached the point in time where the third level of peace has to be uh, reached as well, which is uh, peace with our environment <laughs> and uh, peace with our uh, shared resources. So in that sense, I think that a step towards a sustainable Europe uh, would indeed be the third and probably uh, at this stage quite, uh, quite a significant third step towards a fuller integration of the European project towards one that aims to have uh, a more deeper and um, I would say a more longer term form of peace because the, the coal and steel um, community we're now in the at the age where coal is about to be um no longer profitable so we're going to be transitioning out of coal steel is about to be completely changed we're going to be producing green steel so zero emission steel in um, 10 to 15 years from now uh, starting already today so we're moving away from those technologies that brought us together towards uh, finding ways that you know the, the technologies that we use to support our uh, lifestyles are also at peace with our long-term future the future of you know our uh, children and uh, the, the the future of um, the generations actually currently alive <laughs> so um so I think this is why, to me, it seems like it's the biggest reinvention of the European Union uh, since its inception, because we're actually changing the, the core principles upon which it was set up. We're no longer talking about a, a union of coal and steel. We're going to be talking about a climate uh, union. I uh, previously referred to it as a climate democracy. Uh, but uh, but I think we're going into the direction of a climate economy, which I very much hope will be a climate democracy as well. Uh, Susanna, you are a nightmare for any uh, host of a podcast or a show because everything you say is so interesting <laughs> that I want to stay. I want to stay in these things that you mentioned, and I have like a list of questions to ask you. But uh, it, this is amazing stuff. Exactly, uh, the European Union, and I had the opportunity to study like you how the European Union was formed. And it was exactly because of regional regional enemies and war. And now we have a global enemy. So what what best, instead of aliens, let's all get together and fight against uh, climate change. But uh, this, I have to stay here for a little more. Climate democracy and climate economy. Uh, these are very uh, broad concepts. I understand that. But... Can you tell our listeners then a little bit, because it might connect to the second point that I wanted to talk to you, which is inequality and migration. Uh, thank you and apologies for having uh, possibly introduced uh, some terms which have been used 
find. <laughs> Some of them, I must admit, uh, I, I've, I've, uh, I might have created uh, a little bit myself, the climate democracy one, uh, but with with the reference to, to what, uh, you know, others have sort of brought up in this space as well. But what I mean by that um, is quite interestingly that um, we can actually use the new carbon economy to build... Um, for the first time in history, a direct link between economic growth and citizens' um, empowerment. So, for example, using, uh, let's say, carbon revenues, right? Because uh, obviously to uh, mitigate climate change, carbon pricing is quite a big tool. It's a bit of a uh, fix or a plug-in. It's a plug-in to the economic system, that's all. It's, a, it, it's really taking into account a dimension that has long been overlooked by traditional economics. We haven't put a price on negative externalities. We're now at the stage where they're catching up with us. So by putting a fix such as carbon pricing, we're also raising amounts of money um, which are significant and um, in some of the more progressive, um, let's say, literature or uh, just discussion groups, uh, there have been pleas made to actually give uh, these revenues somehow, find, finding a way to, to give them back to citizens, either through, you know, a, a climate citizens dividend or uh, through specialized programs that um, seek to alleviate certain community issues. Uh, whether that's, you know, energy poverty or uh, housing renovation or, um, you know, upgrading the educational system to truly reflect the needs of the 21st century. So at the time when, when I started working on this topic four years ago, uh, this was a very niche topic with the mostly, let's say, carbon pricing experts in it. However, you're seeing this topic coming up at the very forefront of the European agenda and the European Council meetings nowadays, uh, talking about ways to gather uh, own resources for the EU budget through carbon pricing. And my view is that uh, while that's greatly appreciated, that we're acknowledging the power uh, that, you know, even putting a price on, on the polluting economy uh, gives us to to build a more resilient society overall, I still think there's a bigger role there for citizens to play. I don't necessarily agree with the view that the European Commission alone is uh, best placed to um, drive the policy agenda on, on these topics anymore, simply because their um, their impact goes very deeply into, into the lifestyles of citizens, whereby they should be empowered to make these choices. But nonetheless, we are looking at uh, a fundamental shift in how investment flows will be uh, managed and how investment flows will be uh, then recycled back to uh, society. And so I think it's a great uh, step. We're having these discussions in the European Union, but I'd like to see, and hopefully the EU Green Deal, mentioning what I said earlier, can, can promote this a bit. I, I want to see a bit more trust being built between member state governments and their citizens in terms of how these carbon revenues are going to be used. Um, member states have long enjoyed the, the revenues so they are collecting revenues by pricing co2 but i think looking ahead we have to to see a more honest conversation about how these um, revenues should be used and in my view they could be used precisely to advance a social liberal agenda which will be fundamental in getting um to, in, in in making any green transition um not just acceptable but uh, beneficial now i'm gonna step back a little bit because uh the first time i saw you which 
actually on the uh, uh, workshop organized by our colleagues, Friedrich Nauman Foundation in Bulgaria and North Macedonia. And we were talking about how uh, technology could help the citizen advocacy and how can we use digital means to make uh, a more democratic, a more inclusive society. And I remember you at the time, you mentioned one of your interests was inequality and migration. And at the moment, I thought to myself, "Ooh, I need to talk about Susanna, how those things link. So and bringing up the first part of our conversation, climate change, inequality, migration and uh, technology and innovation. So with this, all these ingredients, can we make a little bit of a headway in here? How do you think that this rush with innovation and technology and COVID in a way was an accelerant for that? How can this be a good tool? I will start uh, from the point of uh, the inequality uh, and migration, because uh, and and I will uh, end with answering your question. So inequality takes different forms and shapes, uh, obviously when when we're discussing migration. But I think the clear, the most clear example is uh, even to bring up the fact that across the European Union you have uh, completely different. Um, integration services for uh, migrants arriving to Europe, for asylum uh, seekers that then are granted asylum. So there is almost no surprise that uh, there can be no headway on, on a migration policy at the European level, which is so deeply broken at the human level, because you know it, it shouldn't be that as an asylum seeker in certain countries you you make uh, you make you you earn in your first months, let's say, uh, below a wage that would allow a citizen there to rent a flat and have a normal life you're already you know by by giving insufficient resources you're already uh, endangering the integration process uh, at an early stage whereas in other countries you've got a very complete set of integration policies so <clears throat> Again, I think uh, the, the new migration pact had a good opportunity to alleviate uh, those differences. It didn't do so. Um, there, there could be uh, there, there could be a stronger incentive to have a unified European policy on integration that seeks to maximize access to opportunities for those arriving to Europe. Um, now, to to completely jump on the to, to, to jump to the next question, and I, I will link them, but I think it's also good to to talk about them in. Uh, separate chapters, um, the, the use of the internet and of technology to access uh, either decision-making processes or wider societal debates has been exacerbated or exacerbated, has been put on fast forward by the current crisis. Um, that's had many, many benefits, right? So uh, we are seeing um, the online debates uh, attracting more and more, uh, let's say, citizen participation. And uh, we are seeing an interest uh, developing across the EU in different forms of, let's say, local consultations, uh, making their way into local decision-making processes. But nonetheless, what we've also seen in this crisis is that there is the massive risk that you know, the, these consultations and the time spent online uh, is also, uh, it, it does not actually filter through to, to decision-making processes. And nonetheless, it is still referred to as having contributed to it. So the, the policies indicated in one place do not make their way into the other place, but then the process itself is used as a legitimizing, let's say, um, force for perhaps uh, policies which are then imposed upon citizens. And so 
you know, th that's something simply to, to monitor for now. I think it's for all of us to, to do our very best to ensure that, um, you know, online, um, online democracy works uh, in, in a way that's relevant and inclusive. But I think my, my, my biggest concern with regards to sort of um, how technology has, has um, developed as a societal force in 2020 comes from the fact that we are starting to um, lose more and more of the spaces uh, for individual um, exp you know, expressions in, so where our access to public spaces has been reduced. Um, and so that is quite quite a big issue because public spaces themselves do give an opportunity for equality, even if returning then back to, let's say, our homes gives all of us different circumstances we're returning to. But nonetheless, by closing one of the core places where equality could uh, actually take a, a physical form, uh, equality of expression, equality of presence, you know, uh, we are actually all, all of a sudden in a much more unequal, unequal world, um, either derived from our, you know, different economic circumstances or just, uh, or, or just kind of uh, the very fact that we can no longer relate to uh, much of our community. So, now, really, there could be a role um, for technology to, to alleviate this, but it cannot be technology only. Uh, it's, it's just that, uh, you know, coming back to the, the framework of human rights, um, there, within, within that framework, there's quite clear articles so with, that, that speak of a, of a right to have a holistic education that develops all the aspects of the human being. So that includes the relational aspect. Uh, we are relational beings. We do, uh, you know, develop our points of view and our understanding of the world through interaction. So I, I'm not sure that to, to, to what extent can technology fully, you know, kind of um, replace uh, the, the, importance, the importance of community life. And I worry when technology is used uh, extensively in, let's say, migration management. We've seen in the new migration pact that there is an emphasis on uh, how technologies will be used for faster, um, you know, um, let's say, asylum procedures, which, of course, faster asylum procedures are in general good for those uh, awaiting a decision. But at the same time, you can't really minimize individual experiences to a couple of clicks online. Uh, so we are here actually on a, on a little bit of an edge uh, with technology and there is a risk that by emphasizing it too much, we're in fact cannibalizing, let's say, some of our other values and we have to be very careful here. And perhaps if you allow me a final minute on this, um, <laughs> thank you, you're very kind. Um, I talk a lot, so, uh, but yeah, okay. Uh, so under the EU Green Deal, uh, we've been uh, surprised from the climate side that uh, what started as a climate uh, economic agenda, so to say back in uh, July last year and then towards the European Parliament uh, to uh, end of uh, 2019, uh, was then all of a sudden presented in March 2020 as a digital and ecological transition that uh, both of these transitions are referred to in European um, Union documents as being twin transitions, when in fact, uh, you know, the, there's nothing really twinning them other than, okay, they're happening uh, uh, at the same point in time, but uh, they are not actually uh, aiming, they're, they're not 
delivering uh, the same goals. They're not taking uh, place in the same way. And uh, we have to be a bit careful there on relying maybe too much on uh, uh, digitalization for, for things that still require quite uh, solid, uh, you know, uh, participation of citizens um, in, in shaping, uh, you know, kind of even air quality measures and uh, so 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 i think that we are on a bit of a um, brink here uh, whereby although i do see the benefits of, of you know technology in helping us mitigate climate change but i think actually the digitalization agenda has to be done uh, following a certain set of core values uh, which i currently don't see being very strongly emphasized in in yeah in in the discussions Possibly because it's all happening too fast, but then, uh, but then we need to now uh, six months into into the pandemic to really um, to really pause and reflect and do things a bit better <laughs> um, wherever it's possible. And now, as we're getting to the end of this conversation, but I'm going to ask Susanna to come back because, like I was saying a minute ago, there are so many more roads that we can travel here. But for now, tell us how people can follow your work and maybe follow you. Okay, so in terms of my online presence, I uh, have uh, my own blog where uh, I, I publish different uh, different uh, think pieces uh, on either uh, migration or European topics and of course on climate change. Uh, a couple of the concepts I brought up today uh, are all present on that blog. Uh, it's uh, www.susannacarp.com. I should mention Susanna is spelled with one N. <laughs> I think that's a general uh, impression that it has two Ns. Uh, nonetheless, I'm quite uh, active on Twitter, uh, where my handle is uh, S-U-Z-L-C-A-R-P, so Susan Carp. <laughs> and um, I'm also uh, frequently um, having interventions in the media on, on climate change topics, and uh, there's a lot of the work that uh, Bellona, my uh, organization that I work for, so the environmental think tank I work for, uh, publishes regularly online the different um, the different positions we take on topics uh, around the Green Deal. We do work very strongly on technologies, I should say, so uh, but uh, with a view on uh, on limiting uh, CO2 emissions. So not necessarily the digital aspect of technology development, but rather the core uh, sort of where do you store the CO2. <laughs> And uh, how else could you be producing steel and cement uh, if you wanted to to reduce emissions? So that sort of technology take is available on uh, bellona.org. I occasionally post on my uh, Instagram, uh, which is also uh, has my name, so Susanna Carp. All these links, I'm going to put them on the show notes of the podcast so that you can follow uh, not only Susanna, but also the work done by the think tank Bellona. Susanna, this has been a fantastic conversation. Uh, it's a privilege to have someone with your level of expertise on the podcast uh, to give us such rich information. And I'm going to ask you to come back because, again, I think that this is just starting. And as you mentioned during this conversation, often there's a lot of work to be done to make things better. But I think today we gave a little bit of a contribution with your help. So thank you again so much for coming to the podcast. You're very welcome and uh, thank you so, so much for inviting me. Uh, it's so nice, as I said earlier, to have the opportunity to use technology to connect, to, to um, 
let's say, uh, you know, uh, new friends, in fact, uh, across Europe. So I, I do hope uh, to be invited again. And uh, I'm glad that you reached out to me. I very much appreciate it. And I hope uh, others who will listen to this podcast will also reach out. So I hope to be back soon. back just to remind you that you can find this podcast on apple Podcasts, stitcher and spotify and if you like it give us a five-star review in that way you can help us spread even more liberal values and ideas and now for some of the events organized by elf for this month of november on the 24th of november based in the czech republic we have after the first wave the effects of the pandemic to the human rights this conference wishes to introduce how Central European countries cope with the first wave of the pandemic and what the governments intend to do when dealing with the second wave. We will also discuss how the European Union can help the region and the importance of local communities and municipal governments during the pandemic. And then on the 25th of November in Greece, we have EU Ascension and Economic Freedom. Does European Union market reforms and policies foster economic freedom? Some key questions that are to be discussed in this event is the ascension of the European Union and the reforming period that is linked to more economic freedom. Do identify EU economic policies with a detrimental effect to economic freedom? And is regional divergence an obstacle to the overall integration policy and economic freedom? And then on the 26th of November, based in Belgium and organized by the European Liberal Forum, we have on the agenda European Green Deal and the day after. We're going to be focusing on this webinar on the Green Deal and the role of governments, business and European citizens in the post-COVID-19 era. On the same day, and also in Belgium, we have Young Changemakers Academy 2020, and this is the third event. The Young Changemakers Academy is a program aiming to prepare young people to take active part in their respective communities by shaping their future in giving policy areas. This third event connects young people to senior political figures from all over Europe with similar interests and objectives. And then on the 27th of November, based in Spain, we have a voice for the youth, how to speak up and make yourself heard. This event targets participants between 20 and 35 years old from all over Europe that have either an advanced level of studies or first work experiences. Participants will work in teams, you will learn successful policy developments and get to know about stakeholder engagement and work on your own policy proposals in the field of economic progress and social inclusion. To know more about all these events, you just have to go to www.liberalforum.eu forward slash events. And this is all for now, but I'll be back soon with more podcasts. Until then, let's keep making the world a better place. The Liberal Europe podcast It's organized by the European Liberal Forum with the support of Movimento Liberal Social in Portugal. This podcast is co-founded by the European Parliament and the European Parliament is not responsible for the contents of this podcast or any news that may be made of it. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the European Parliament and or the European Liberal Forum. <laughs>